Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a daily program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. We're working our way through the two-year version of the RMM Scripture Reading Plan, and I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 20. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, these verses represent John's eyewitness testimony to the empty tomb. The role of witness has been an important theme in John's gospel. John the Baptist was a witness. Jesus was a witness. He was speaking about what only he had seen. And now the disciples are supposed to be witnesses as well. They're supposed to speak about what they have seen. And so John has been very careful to establish his credentials as a witness. In the last chapter, at the very moment when he told us about the death of Jesus on the cross, he said in John 19.35, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. John was an eyewitness to the death of Christ on the cross. And in this chapter, he wants us to understand that he was an eyewitness witness to the empty tomb. So let's take careful notice of this testimony. I think we need to see three things in particular. First of all, we need to notice that John was one of three witnesses to the empty tomb. John tells us that there were three people who witnessed the empty tomb, Mary, Peter, and of course, John himself. This is not something that John just said on his own. The number three, of course, is very significant. As Bible readers will know, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. According to the Scriptures, If two or three members of the covenant community swear to the truth of a matter, it is to be accepted as fact. 
The principle of multiple witnesses is repeated in the New Testament. Jesus says it in Matthew 18, and Paul says it in 1 Timothy 5. Old Testament and New, the Bible teaches that within the covenant community, truth is established upon the testimony of multiple witnesses. Now, of course, we need to point out that one of these witnesses was a woman. That is wildly significant. In Judaism, the testimony of a woman was inadmissible in court. And yet, in the providence of God, it is arranged for Mary to be among the three. Right from the beginning of Christianity, this is a point of discontinuity with Judaism. With respect to our salvation, with respect to our intimacy with God through Christ, with respect to our common mandate to make disciples and to share the gospel, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female. Now, as we read through the rest of the New Testament, we discover that being saved by God in Christ does not obliterate our gender. There are still ways in which we are uniquely and gloriously male and female. But it must be noted here that with respect to revelation, with respect to intimate disclosure, with respect to witness and testimony, there is no male and female. There are only those who have seen and believed. Thanks be to God. We should also notice that these witnesses were consistent in their testimony despite massive pressure to recant. Peter and John were both arrested. They were both flogged and told by the Jewish Sanhedrin to stop preaching this resurrected Jesus, and they both refused. The Romans likewise pressured these two apostles to recant, and they both refused. Church history records that Peter was crucified upside down, refusing to deny the Lord. Tertullian, an early church writer and apologist, tells us that the Apostle John was tortured by being dipped in boiling oil. But he, like Peter, would not recant his testimony. Their witness, therefore, was legal, according to the scriptures. It was consistent, and it was unchanging, even under torture. You need to see that. And you need to wrestle with that. People don't normally die and endure torture for a lie. Secondly, we need to take careful notice of these linen cloths. John makes special mention of them in verses 5 to 6. He says, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. They both saw the linen cloths, John said. Obviously, he thinks that's important, and we need to think about why that might be. Well, we know that grave robbing was a fairly significant problem in the Roman Empire, so much so that the Emperor Claudius instituted capital punishment for grave robbers in hopes that it would serve as a deterrent. The Jewish authorities also levied significant penalties on anyone who was caught robbing a grave. From that, we can make some fairly obvious conclusions. People obviously did rob graves, and they did it at great risk to their own lives, and that makes the appearance of Jesus' tomb very unusual. Grave robbers did not steal bodies. They stole valuables, meaning if the tomb had been robbed, the body would still be there and the linen cloths would be gone. Linen was valuable, not to mention the spices that could have been salvaged from the cloth. 
If it had been a robbery, the body would have been left and the linen cloths would have been taken, but that is not what these witnesses saw. They saw linens and no body. And that means that this wasn't a robbery. It was a resurrection. Thirdly, John wants us to notice the folded face cloth. He mentions that separately. And this is verse 7. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. That seems to indicate two things. First of all, once again, it seems to speak against the idea of a robbery. You would expect robbers to take valuable things, and you would, not, you would not expect robbers to fold things. Robbers snatch, grab, and run. They don't stay and do laundry. Second thing we're probably supposed to see here is the contrast between this cloth and the cloths that had been on Lazarus. When Lazarus came forth from the grave in John chapter 11, we are told, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him. Did you hear that? They had to unwrap his head because Lazarus was raised with a regular, though revivified, human body. Jesus was not. He was raised with a resurrection body. You understand, of course, that Lazarus died again, Fairly shortly thereafter, Jesus did not. Jesus exists in an unaging, incorruptible, immortal, fully glorified human body. That body had unusual properties, like, for example, the ability to pass through walls. John mentions that capacity in verse 19 of this chapter. So it seems that the point of this folded head cloth, rather than an unwrapped pile is that Jesus did not simply wake up and unwrap himself. Rather, he passed alive through his grave clothes. He took his time. He folded things neatly and he left the tomb alive. That is what John saw when he entered the tomb and seeing he believed. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Though they refer to them in different ways, all four gospel writers make mention of angels sitting in attendance inside the empty tomb. 
Colin Cruz comments here saying, The presence of angels at the tomb testifies to the fact that the disappearance of Jesus' body has been caused by divine, not human, intervention. Now, as to the counter that Mary had with the resurrected Jesus, we can't be sure why she didn't recognize him at first. It may simply have been that her eyes were filled with tears, or it may have been that Jesus was the last person she expected to see, or it may have been that Jesus' appearance was significantly altered by nature of the fact that he was now living in a perfectly glorified body. There is, of course, continuity and discontinuity between our present bodies and our future glorified bodies, and it may be that Mary's initial confusion was due to that marvelous discontinuity. We will, of course, be us in eternity, but also gloriously better. Thanks be to God. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Notice that one of the characteristics of Jesus' glorified body is that he had the ability to pass through walls. The the door was locked, but Jesus came into their midst regardless. And yet he was physical and not a mere ghost or spirit. He showed them his hands and his side. So obviously he had a body, but it was different and better in certain mysterious ways. Notice also that John includes here a different version of the commission given to the disciples. Jesus probably said a number of things about the future mission of the church on several different occasions, but this is the one that John recorded. Here Jesus says, As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And, of course, that invites us to remember the things Jesus said about his own mission from the Father. He said in chapter 6 and 8 that he had been sent to do the Father's will. He said in chapters 3, 8, 12, 14, and 17 that he had been sent to speak the Father's words. He said in chapter 4, 5, and 9 that he had been sent to perform the Father's works. He said in chapter 3 that he had been sent to win salvation for all who believe. Therefore, to be sent into the world as Jesus was sent into the world is to pursue similar objectives. It is to do the Father's will. It is to speak the words of God. It is to do the works of God, and it is to invite people into the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. That is John's version of the Great Commission. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. At the end of John's gospel, even brave, logical, empirical Thomas has been helped to believe. In fact, Thomas's exclamation provides the narrative and theological climax of John's gospel. When Thomas sees the risen Christ, sees his wounds, his hands, his side, he makes the most exalted Christological confession in all of the Gospels. My Lord and my God. That is the essential Christian creed. And that is where John has been leading us all along. He says that very thing in verse 31, that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is John's prayer. John wants you to take up this creed as your own. He wants you to read this book, consider his testimony, and to do, in the end, as Thomas did, to examine the evidence and to declare for yourself, my Lord and my God. If you confess those words with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead, the Bible says, Romans 10, 9, that you will be saved. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.